me this. Live streaming isn't available right now. But I don't believe it. All right. Yeah. Looks like everything is good. We'll check Twitter. Make sure the Twitter stream is up. All right. I got the... I got the email saying that I'm live, so looks like I'm probably live. Do me a favor and throw me a comment. Let me know everything looks good. What's up, Slowboy Whiteboard? That's a killer name. That's awesome. <laughs> Says it is streaming. That's good to see. We'll give it a little bit here to uh, let some people show up in here. Before we really get started down here in Texas, we've got a nice Texas thunderstorm rolling in. I don't think it'll quite, the thunder shouldn't get picked up by the mic, but if it does, that'll make for a cool ambient atmosphere. So obviously this is going to be the, uh, the fourth part of my live reading of Father Seraphim Rose's Nihilism, the Root of the Revolution of the Modern Age. Um, we've done three parts, obviously, to this point, which has gotten us about three quarters of the way through the book. So I think we should be able to finish it here uh, today. I think it'll probably take about an hour and a half or so to read through this. And then the next thing that we'll get started reading on this live reading series is Father Seraphim Rose's Orthodoxy and the Religion of the Future, which is obviously a much longer book, but um, that's one that I haven't read at all. So it'll be um, something that I'm encountering for the first time with probably, hopefully some of you guys. Um, and uh, I've been told that it segues really nicely in with this one, that the two of them fit together really well. And then as soon as we finish that one, which will take much more than four episodes, I'm guessing that one's probably going to take something like, I don't know, maybe 12 episodes, 15 episodes, somewhere in there. Um, because it's, I think it's something like 250 pages. And this one is only 40-ish pages. Um, so maybe the pages are shorter and it, it goes quicker. But uh, I'm expecting that one will take us a lot longer. And then as soon as we finish that one, then we're going to be doing uh, Genesis Creation and Early Man. Again, another one by Father Seraphim Rose. Um, in the meantime, I have just gotten confirmation that I'll be doing an interview conversation on the show here with none other than David Gornoski, the host at uh, A Neighbor's Choice. And um, what's the other one? Things Hidden is his, uh, his podcast where he really talks a lot about Rene Girard and sacrifice and mimetic theory. And I listened to a recent episode he did on, I think it was called Jesus and the Cornerstone event. He talked about the imagery of the cornerstone and the capstone and uh, the significance of that, what it means. And it has implications for, um, for us as Christians, um, you know, whether you're a Christian or not, we'll, we're, we're talking about what our obligation is as Christians here. And we'll be discussing 
I think if you could put it in a sentence, it'd be something like, how can we as Christians begin building the city of God? Um, I think it'll be a really interesting conversation. Um, I got confirmation back from him that, uh, that he, as he put it, he'd be delighted to come on. So I'm very honored uh, to have his presence here on the show. And uh, hopefully sometime this week, um, maybe next week, sometime here in the near future, we'll, um, we'll have that conversation. And I hope you guys will enjoy that. I've, I've been a follower of David's for quite a while now. I remember, I remember listening to some of his stuff when I lived in the Valley in Southern California, North of LA. Uh, so that would have been at least four years ago. Um, so I've been following him for a really long time. One of my favorite thinkers out there, just absolutely brilliant man. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. That'll be a great conversation. I've got a couple other people as well. Um, in the queue, just got to pin down a time to actually, actually do that, actually have that conversation. What's up, Rigovich? John MC. These are a couple names that I've Rigovich I've seen here on this stream uh, on this series I've been doing. I don't think I've seen Slowboy Whiteboard in here before, or, or maybe John MC. It's kind of cool to see some new names here. Um, not that I, uh, I I don't appreciate the the regulars, the people who are usually here, but it's cool to have some other some other folks around. Uh, Hopefully this, the channel will start picking up some steam here again, pretty soon. Um, as I get more consistent with putting out content, life has been kind of chaotic lately. And, uh, I don't know, it doesn't, it doesn't show any signs of slowing down, but I think that, uh, making the, the channel a more central part of what I'm doing is going to be a little easier. So, um, yeah, we got some good stuff coming, got some good ideas behind the scenes for, uh, an interesting direction that I'd like to, to take the show is I've, I, I've spent the last year plus really trying to figure out what Kingpilled means. I kind of stumbled upon the name and it, it stuck and it fit and, uh, people seem to like it, but it's been hard to figure out exactly what the, the ultimate message is. Like, what's the exact idea that I'm trying to convey here? It was pretty easy early on because, we had the uh, the LPMC and kind of libertarians at large as punching bags. And frankly, libertarians make very easy punching bags. But eventually it's kind of like fi shooting fish in a barrel. It just feels, it just feels kind of cruel and pointless. And I've been looking for a, a larger message. And the thing is, I've been trying to find that larger message for myself, for my, my own life. So it's not something that's necessarily come naturally, but I think things are kind of starting to to fall into place. Things are starting to click a little bit. And uh, yeah, so anyways, we'll have more on that here in the near future. Um, I'm going to go ahead and get started. Uh, one thing that you guys can do to help, do me a favor and, and, and like the video, like the stream and share it if you would. It's on Twitter. I'm streaming live onto Twitter. So you can retweet that if you want, if you're on Twitter um, or uh, just share the YouTube stream. That was a Big clap of thunder. Still going. Okay, this will be interesting. This will be fun. We'll see how long the stream holds up. Um, we haven't really had power go out here. We've had it blink a few times, though, So, um, in the past. Um, so if I just disappear, all of a sudden, you'll know why. Um, what was I saying? Uh, oh, yeah. So uh, if you could like the stream and uh, and then just comment on the video, just leave any comment saying anything you want. doesn't doesn't have to be anything special, just anything helps the algorithm. And then those of you participating in the live chat, I really appreciate it. You guys help that as well. 
the algorithm basically wants to know if uh, if people are watching, how long they watch, and if they interact. Even if it's a negative interaction, the algorithm doesn't really care. Um, so if you think that I'm stupid and my hair sucks and you don't like my voice and you know whatever, then just have at it. I don't care. Whatever you say is helping me. Maybe I shouldn't say that. Maybe that makes the haters. If the haters are smart, then they would just be like, oh, no, we're not going to engage at all then. Rigovich, I'm in uh, uh, the general San Antonio area. So South Central Texas. Um, all right. So yeah, if you could share, interact, all that sort of thing, um, then that'd be great. So let's get this show on the road. Get the screen share going. Make sure that works. All right. Okay. So let me grab something to drink here just so I can, my voice will hold up. I'm doing my best to be as Texan as I can. I've got some H-E-B sweet tea. And I'm sure there's somebody out there saying that, that true Texans don't drink H-E-B sweet tea or something. That's It's an inferior form of sweet tea. I don't care. I like it. So, <coughs> ah, John MC says, let me throw this up on the screen. It says, today, the 29th of May and 80, 1453 is an important day of the fall of Constantinople. Only 570 years ago, as if it were just yesterday. <laughs> if that's just yesterday to you, John, then you must be quite old. <laughs> All right. Let's get this show on the road. So um, if you haven't listened to the first three uh, uh, first three sections in this video, then uh, or the first three uh, uh, videos in this series, then I'd recommend going back and listening to them because... Uh, the rest of this will make a lot more sense. Obviously, the last three quarters of a, of a, of a book are going to be uh, easiest to understand if um, you heard the first three quarters of the book. Um, if you're watching live, then feel free to just keep listening. Um, but uh, to this point, he's uh, uh, Father Seraphim has described the, um, the four stages of the nihilist dialectic, um, which is liberalism, uh, realism, vitalism, and then uh, I can't remember exactly the name of the last one. It was uh, the nihilism of destruction. That's what it was. Um, and so then he's been talking about what what the actual tenets of the nihilist religion are, um, which at the core of it is the worship of nothingness. And as man becomes what he worships, so by worshiping nothingness, you become nothing. Uh, and this is another uh, another way of saying the wages of sin is death. Rigovich is an Aussie living in the UK. That's awesome. That's a that's a good combination. You'd be fun to listen to. It'd be fun to listen to you talk, I'm sure. Um, so then now we're talking about the nihilist program. So what is what is the nihilist program? So the first step was the destruction of the old order. And um, and I think this was, was it the making of the new earth? Is that where? Yeah. So I got through the the first two steps of the of the uh the nihilist program, which the first one to be the destruction of the old order, which is this is just this tendency of modern man to just be at war with anything that came prior. Um, this, this uh, constant urge for destructionism or deconstructionism. Um, so the, a couple interesting videos I've watched recently, which is stuff that I want to try to figure out a segue here into the show in the near future. One of them was a, a three hour conversation with Randall Carlson, which was uh, as uh, one of the guys in our discord just recently, uh, 
dubbed him Space Santa, which I think is just the best moniker in the world. That's that that is just perfect. I'm always going to call him Space Santa from now on. Um, I love Randall. Obviously, um, we see the world a little bit differently, but I think there's a lot of of really interesting points that he brings to bear. And I find this study of of ancient history and geology and catastrophism and uh, ancient mythology and some symbolism and all this kind of thing. I think it's absolutely um, just endlessly fascinating way of looking at the world. And I want to know more. Um, and then, so that's one, one thing that I was listening to recently. And then, um, which obviously there's a big strain within that way of looking at the world, which is, is, uh, that our ancestors have knowledge that we would do well to listen to. And there's clearly a concerted effort in the modern world to spit on anything ancestral. Um, so that's part of this destruction of the old order is you, if you can convince uh, people to doubt and disrespect their ancestors, their way of life, their traditions, then you will very quickly destroy the moral fiber of the people. This is what degeneration is. It's quite literally degeneration. So you have uh, someone has a child that's called a generation. That child has a child. There's another generation. Human beings having children is more than just procreation. It's actually even embedded in that, that term procreation, creation. You're creating something. You're not just mindlessly reproducing. You're creating the world um, through the, the, um, through the successive generations you're passing on when you, when you procreate, you don't just reproduce, you also train your children. You, you, um, uh, teach your children how to act. You enculturate them with your values. Um, you develop them morally, you develop them as human beings. That's part of generation. Degeneration is the opposite of that. It's the act of, of eliminating, uh, the connection between a people and their ancestors, the people who came before them. As Christians, obviously, we have a larger family, even beyond those who were literally physically related to. We have the saints. The saints are our spiritual ancestors, and we're members of the family of God together. So separating Christi Christianity from the tradition of saints is degenerating Christianity. It has a degenerative effect on Christianity because you lose the wisdom of those who came before you. Um, so that's part. That's the first step in the destruction of the of, of the first step in the the nihilist program is the destruction of the old order. And the next step is the making of the new earth. So if you you destroy that, you create a vacuum. It's going to have to be filled with something. Um, nature abhors a vacuum, as they say. So something will 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 step in and and um, fill this destruction of the old order. There's going to be a new order. Um, you could even call it a new world order. Um, so uh, we went through those two sections. Now we're up to the point of the fashioning of the new man. And I think this is, the section is going to be very applicable. This section and going forward is like the rest of the book has, is going to be very applicable to all of us um, in this modern age. So we'll get this started. All right. The fashioning of the new man. The destruction of the old order, however, and the organization of the new earth are not the only items in the historical program of nihilism. They are not perhaps even its most important items. 
They are but a preparation for a work more significant and more ominous than either, the transformation of man. It's interesting if you think about these first two steps, um, the, the destruction of the old order and the creation of the new order, it kind of is mirroring the act of creation itself. So you had the earth was, was uh, formless and void, and the spirit of God um, was over the, fa- over the deep, over the waters. And then, so there's, in a sense, the act of creation was, in, in a manner of speaking, a destruction of the old order. It was, it was destroying the way that things were, which was actually a, a not being, and a bringing into being of the, the new thing. So then this nihilist program is a, is a, a direct inversion in this way and many other ways, it's a direct inversion of the creation by God, where now they're trying to destroy the old order, which is the creation of God, and to establish a new order, which is a creation, quote unquote, that stands in direct opposition to God. And what did God do after he created the world? Well, then he created man. So in the same way, this is the 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 previous, the destruction of the old order and the creation of the new order is a pretext for the creation of the, for the creation of the new man. This was the dream of the pseudo-Nietzscheans, Hitler and Mussolini, of a higher humanity to be forged through a creative violence. This is the mission of our century, said Hitler's propagandist Rosenberg, out of a new life myth to create a new human type. We know from Nazi practice what this human type was, and the world would seem to have rejected it as brutal and inhuman. But the mass change in human nature to which Marxism looks, looks is an end that is perhaps not very different. Marx and Engels are unequivocal on this subject, quoting, both for the production on a mass scale of this communist consciousness and for the success of the cause itself, the alteration of men on a mass scale is necessary, an alteration which can only take place in a practical movement, a revolution. This revolution is necessary, therefore, not only because the ruling class cannot be overthrown in any other way, but also because the class overthrowing it can only in a revolution succeed in ridding itself of all the muck of ages and become fitted to found society anew. It's, it's interesting, the uh, the notion here, not only because the ruling class cannot be overthrown in any other way, that there's, there's baked into this is the premise that the ruling class needs to be overthrown. Um, and But it's not just overthrowing the ruling class. It's overthrowing the ruling class and everything the ruling class stood for and everything that every ruling class prior to that one stood for that had accumulated on that institution of the ruling class. So it's it's like explicitly hostile to anything that came before it. Putting aside for the moment the question of what kind of men are to be produced by this process, let us note carefully the means utilized. It is again, violence which is as necessary to the formation of the new man as it is to the building of a new earth. The two, indeed, are intimately connected in the determinist philosophy of Marx. For, quoting, in revolutionary activity, change of self coincides with the change of circumstances. Close quote. The change of circumstances, and more to the point, the process of changing them through revolutionary violence, transform the revolutionaries themselves. Here, Marx and Engels, like their contemporary Nietzsche, and like Lenin and Hitler after them, subscribe to the mystique of violence, seeing a magical change to be wrought in human nature through indulgence of the passions of anger, hatred, resentment, and the will to dominate. Again, man becomes what he worships. 
In this regard, we must make note also of the two world wars, whose violence has helped to destroy forever the old order and the old humanity, rooted in a stable and traditional society, and has had a large role in producing the new uprooted humanity that Marxism idealizes. The 30 years of nihilist war and revolution between 1914 and 1945 have been an ideal breeding ground for the new human type. It is, of course, no secret to contemporary philosophers and psychologists that man himself is changing in our violent century, under the influence, of course, not of not only of war and revolution, but also of practically everything else that lays claim to being modern and progressive. And remember, he's writing this in the 60s. So we're 60 years removed from him making these observations. Imagine how much more profound these observations are now, 60 years hence. We have already cited the most striking forms of nihilist vitalism, whose cumulative effect has been to uproot, disintegrate, and mobilize the individual, to substitute for his normal stability and rootedness a senseless quest for power and movement, and to to replace normal human feeling by a nervous excitability. The work of nihilist realism, in practice as in theory, has been parallel and complementary to that of vitalism a work of standardization, specialization, simplification, mechanization, dehumanization. Its effect has been to reduce the individual to the most primitive and basic level, to make him in fact the slave of his environment, the perfect workman in Lenin's worldwide factory. Notice this this trajectory here. Standardization, specialization, simplification, mechanization, dehumanization. It begins by standardizing everything. This is the equality, the absolute equality. Everything must be standardized. Once everything's been standardized, then we have specialists, the specialists who deal with anything that can't be standardized. Anything that can't be standardized then gets, anything that's specialized that can't be standardized gets simplified. It gets reduced down and automated. Once it's been automated, it can be mechanized. And if it's mechanized, we will be dehumanized. The dehumanization of man comes through the elimination of work and uh, laboring, physically doing things and investing that labor in something that lasts. Whether you're building a building, whether you're building a family, whether you're building a community, you're investing in something that lasts. In the modern era, especially now as automation and technology is, 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 is starting to, to accelerate out of control, what you're seeing is man is becoming rootless, becoming completely rootless, rootlessly cosmopolitan perhaps, becoming completely rootless as everything is becoming mechanized to where now it's kind of like the, uh, the fat people in Wally, where we become completely dehumanized. We're just fat blobs where we've created all of these tools around us that work for us. So we don't have to, so we can do what nothing. There's nothing. It's not like we're generating all this technology to take certain tasks away from us so that we can dedicate ourselves to other tasks. Now that does happen. And this is actually a key part of the King pilled message that I'm building out. Maybe I need to write a King pilled manifesto or something. This is a key part of that is that technology is not evil per se. Automating your tasks is not evil per se. But the purpose of why you're automating them 
and what you're doing once they're automated, that matters a lot. Because if you're just automating all of your tasks so you no longer have to work at all, and you can just sit around and sniff your own farts, you're going to become, that's going to be a, have a dehumanizing effect on you. It's going to de degenerate you. Your body is literally going to degenerate. And this is perfect for this communist vision where everyone is equal. Everyone is an equal cog in one gigantic predetermined machine. It'd be an interesting conversation to have about how, um, uh, I don't want to be too provocative here. I have, I have people I care about who, who uh, favor one of these points of view, but I'm just going to say it. You can draw a direct line from Calvinism to communism. They share the same fundamental perspective on the world in some very key ways. Might make an interesting conversation down the road, but I'd have to step on a lot of people's toes. I think even just saying that is probably stepping on some people's toes who I do care about. I got to say, I got to, I got to call it like I see it. Thank you, John. Appreciate your, your commentary on my, my reading voice. I've, I've been practicing. These observations are commonplace today. A multitude of volumes has been written about them. Many thinkers are able to see the clear connection between the nihilist philosophy that reduces reality and human nature to the simplest possible terms and a nihilist practice that similarly reduces the concrete man. Not a few also realize the seriousness and the radicalness of this reduction, even to the extent of seeing in it, as does Eric Collar, a qualitative change in human nature. Quoting from Collar, the powerful trend toward the disruption and, inval and invalidation of the individual, manifestly present in the most diverse currents of modern life, economic, technological, political, scientific, educational, psychic, and artistic, appears so overwhelming that we are induced to see in it a true mutation, a transformation of human nature. Close quote. But few even of those who realize this have much of any real awareness of its profound significance and implications, for these are theological and so completely outside the scope of any merely empirical analysis, or of a possible remedy, for that must be of the spiritual order. The author just quoted, for example, draws hope from the prospect of a transition into some super-individual form of existence, thus revealing that he has no higher wisdom than that of the spirit of the age, which indeed, as we shall see, has thrown up the idea, uh, the ideal of a social superman. What, more realistically, is this mutation, the new man? He is the rootless man, discontinuous with a past that nihilism has destroyed, the raw material of every demagogue's dream the free thinker and skeptic, closed only to the truth, but open to each new intellectual fashion because he himself has no intellectual foundation. The seeker after some new revelation, ready to believe anything new because true faith has been annihilated in him. The planner and experimenter, worshiping fact because he has abandoned truth, seeing the world as a vast laboratory in which he is free to determine what is possible. The autonomous man, pretending to the humility of only asking his rights, yet full of the pride that expects everything to be given him in a world where nothing is authoritatively forbidden. The man of the moment, without conscience or values and thus at the mercy of the strongest stimulus. The rebel, hating all restraint and authority because he himself is his own and only God. The mass man, this new barbarian, thoroughly reduced and simplified and capable of only the most elementary ideas, yet scornful of anyone who presumes to point out the higher things or the real complexity of life. That whole paragraph is just an absolute flamethrower. It is just 
just a nuke. And I can't help but see in this the to 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 beat up on an old punching bag. I can't help but see in this the standard libertarian. This is very libertarian. This is a very libertarian um, type of person, overlapped with perhaps like a new atheist, like a new atheist libertarian kind of person. There are very distinct roots, I think, that you can find. I don't want to tread into any dangerous territory here. Um, but there are some uh, distinct anthropological roots, some uh, uh, catalogs of ideas, particular catalogs of ideas that really emphasize a lot of these these precepts and really um, try to incentivize people to buy into seeing the world in this way. There are have been particular men who hail from a particular background that have chained ideas together throughout generations that when taken all together, really point you in this direction. Solomon says, thanks for this, bro. I'll be listening to all of it. I'm a truck driver. Awesome. I appreciate it, man. I, I, truck drivers are, are good people. Some of, the, some of the best friends are truck drivers. <laughs> um, I think to do a little, little uh, side quest here, I think that truck driving is one of the most fascinating past or one of the most fascinating um, industries because they get the truck drivers get this reputation for being kind of like, like country bumpkins. And many of them, I'm sure probably wouldn't mind being described, mind identifying as a country bumpkin, but I've found some of the most brilliant people I've ever met were truck drivers because number one, driving a truck or driving truck, as they say, is not an easy skill. It takes a high degree of aptitude to be a, an effective, competent truck driver. And then what do they do all day? They just sit there and listen to stuff. They are some of the most well-read, most highly educated people that you're ever going to meet. They're like, it's like the, it's like the ultimate blue collar career that kind of by default winds up being full of some of the most brilliant men, which I mean, blue collar and brilliant tend to, to overlap quite a bit, but I think especially in the truck driving uh, industry, which is one thing that um, I'm not a Luddite, but I don't want to see truck driving going, go away. There's something that's distinctly Americana about driving a truck. And then this, this, um, additional fact that truck drivers tend to be the, like you, you'll find fewer repositories of just the wildest um, catalogs of knowledge ever in truck drivers. So um, shout out to you, shout out to you, Solomon. Uh, you're a good dude. All right, got to get another drink here. These men are all one man, the man whose fashioning has been the very purpose of nihilism. But mere description cannot do justice to this man. One must see his image. And in fact, such an image has quite recently been portrayed. It is the image of contemporary painting and sculpture, that which has arisen for the most part since the end of the Second World War, as if to give form to the reality produced by the most concentrated era of nihilism in human history. The human form, it would seem, has been rediscovered in this art. Out of the chaos of total abstraction, identifiable shapes emerge. The result supposedly is a new humanism, a return to man that is all the more significant in that, unlike so many of the artistic schools of the 20th century, it is not an artificial contrivance whose substance is hidden behind a cloud of irrationalist jargon, but a spontaneous growth that would seem to have deep roots in the soul of contemporary man.
in the work, for example, of Alberto Giacometti, Jean Dubuffet, Francis Bacon, Leon Golub, Jose Luis Cuevas, to take an international sampling, there seems to be a genuinely contemporary art that, without abandoning the disorder and freedom of abstraction, turns its attention away from mere escape toward a serious human commitment. But what kind of man is it to which this art has returned? It is certainly not Christian man, man in the image of God, for no modern man can believe in him. Nor is it the somewhat diluted man of the old humanism, whom all advanced thinkers regarded as discredited and outmoded. It is not even the man disfigured and denatured in the earliest, earlier cubist and expressionist art of this, new, of this century. Rather, it begins where that art leaves off and attempts to enter a new realm to depict a new man. To the Orthodox Christian observer, concerned not with what the avant-garde finds fashionable or sophisticated, but with truth, little reflection should be required to penetrate to the secret of this art. There is no question of man in it at all. It is an art at once subhuman and demonic. It is not man who is the subject of this art, but some lower creature who has emerged, arrived, is Giacometti's word for it, from unknown depths. Let's take a look at some Alberto Giacometti art here real quick. Hmm. Very interesting. I know for anybody that's, that just, that's just listening to this, you're not going to quite, I wouldn't even know how to describe this. It's uh, kind of disturbing. It sort of looks like a really weird drug trip. But it's very clearly, there's nothing, I mean, like, compare this to any orthodox icon. This looks like some kind of freaky alien. Who are some of these other names? Jean Dubuffet. Let's check that one out. <coughs> um okay yeah i see the kind of vibe he's he's identifying here yeah this just looks like these look like drug trips man this is there's nothing aspirational or beautiful this all looks like something that you'd find at comet ping pong Probably shouldn't have said that. That's probably going to get the video flagged. Oh, well. Uh, let's try one more. Let's try Leon Golub, because I've never heard of this guy. Yeah, there's nothing like the dynamics of power. Some of this, that's probably a different person. Yeah, this is like, I mean, I don't even know what the substance of the of the the pictures are supposed to be, but if you just look at the way that the people are being portrayed, it's not it's not compelling at all. And it's clearly like all this stuff is so clearly demonic. Like once you see it, all this stuff is just so transparently demonic. All right, let's continue. Uh, da, da, da. it's not man who is the subject of this art, but some lower creature who has emerged or arrived as Giacometti's word for it from unknown depths. The bodies this creature assumes, and in all its metamorphoses, it is always the same creature, 
are not necessarily distorted violently. Twisted and dismembered as they are, they are often more realistic than the figures of man in earlier modern art. This creature, it is clear, is not the victim of some violent attack. Rather, he was born deformed. He is a genuine mutation. One cannot but notice the likeness between some of these figures and photographs of the deformed children born recently to thousands of women who had taken the drug thalidomide during pregnancy. We have doubtless not seen the last of such monstrous coincidences. What would he think now? You see some of these people who are like covered in tattoos and they've put horns on their heads and they've split their tongues. And imagine if, if Father Seraphim could see that. I mean, he is seeing it, but imagine if he could have seen that in his day. Even more revealing than the bodies of these creatures are the faces. It would be too much to say that these faces express hopelessness. That would be to ascribe to them some trace of humanity, which they most emphatically lack. They are the faces, rather, of creatures more or less adjusted to the world they know. A world not hostile, but entirely alien. Not inhuman, but ahuman. The anguish and rage and despair of earlier expressionists is here frozen, as it were, and cut off from a world to which they had at least the relation of denial, so as to make a world of their own. Man, in this art, is no longer even a caricature of himself. He is no longer portrayed in the throes of spiritual death ravaged by the hideous nihilism of our century that attacks not just the body and soul, but the very idea and nature of man. No, all this has passed. The crisis is over. Man is dead. The new art celebrates the birth of a new species, the creature of the lower depths, subhumanity. We have dealt with this art at a length, perhaps disproportionate to its intrinsic value, because it offers concrete and unmistakable evidence for him who has eyes to see, of a reality which, expressed abstractly, seems frankly incredible. It is easy to dismiss as fantasy the new humanity foreseen by a Hitler or a Lenin, and even the plans of those quite respectable nihilists among us today who calmly discuss the scientific breeding of a biological Superman, or project a utopia for new men to be developed by the narrowest modern education and a strict control of the mind, seem remote and only faintly ominous. But confronted with the actual image of a new man, an image brutal and loathsome beyond imagination, and at the same time so unpremeditated, consistent, and widespread in contemporary art, one is caught up short, and the full horror of the contemporary state of man strikes, one a, strikes a blow one is not likely soon to forget. There's a particular... Um, there's a particular kind of art form that I've seen people seen people talk about before it's like a a corporate art that you see all the time i don't know even what to look for faceless corporate art yeah this kind of stuff right here this is what that reminds me of corporate memphis i guess is what it's called let's look that up corporate memphis Yeah, this stuff. It's like, I guess these ones have faces, but a lot of them are faceless and they're kind of these weird, distorted bodies. They're always, of course, super diverse. And they just, this might be kind of interesting, an interesting video. The dark story of corporate art, the world's most hated art style. I'm going to open this to watch later on. That might make it for an interesting episode as well. All right. Anyways, uh, 
Random username says Einstein took up the patent clerk job to think. Today he would have driven a big rig. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. All right, another drink real quick. Beyond nihilism. The image of the new man presented in these pages has been exclusively a negative one. Many students of the contemporary state of man, while perhaps admitting the truth of some of our observations, would condemn them as a whole for being one-sided. In all justice, then, we must examine the other side, the positive view. And indeed, it cannot be questioned that beside the, the current of despair, disillusionment, and a humanity that we have described as emerging from the era of nihilism, there has been developing a parallel current of optimism and idealism that has produced its own new men. These are the young men, both idealistic and practical, ready and anxious to cope with the difficult problems of the day, to spread the American or the Soviet ideal, or the more universal ideal that stands above both, to backward countries. Enthusiastic scientists pushing back frontiers everywhere in the undeniably exciting research and experimentation being con conducted today. Pacifists and nonviolent idealists crusading in the cause of peace, brotherhood, world unity, and the overcoming of age-old hatreds. Young writers angry for the cause of justice and equality and preaching as best as they can in this sorry world a new message of joy and creativity. Even the artists whose image of man we have, we have mercilessly attacked for it is surely their intention to condemn the world that produced this man and so point the way beyond him. And the great numbers of more ordinary young people who are enthusiastic to be alive in this exciting time, sincere, well-meaning, looking with confidence and optimism to the future, to a world that may at least know happiness instead of misery. The older generation itself, too scarred from the era of nihilism it has passed through to share fully the enthusiasm of the young, has high hopes for them. Is it not just possible that if the spirit of the age is favorable, their dreams may after all be realized? Without as yet answering this question, we must ask another more fundamental question. Of what nature are the faith and hope that inspire these dreams? The answer is evident. They are entirely a worldly faith and hope. Artistic and scientific novelties, prosperity and comfort, new worlds for exploration, peace, brotherhood, and joy, as the popular mind understands them. These are the goods of a world that will pass away. And if they are pursued with the single-minded devotion which the optimistic new man of today devotes to them, they are spiritually harmful. Man's true and eternal home is not in this world. The true peace and love and joy of Christ, which the believer knows even in this life, are of an entirely different dimension from the worldly parodies of them which fill the new man with vain hopes. The existence of this new man, whose hope whose faith and hope are directed solely to this world, is but another proof of the success of the nihilist program. The new man, in his positive form, is taken from the same photograph of which the subhumanity we have described is the negative. In the negative, he is seen as defeated and denatured by an inhuman world. The pessimism and, dis pessimism and despair of this image, and this is their only positive significance, are a last feeble protest against the work of nihilism, at the same time that they are a testimony to its success. In the positive, the new man has set about to change the world, and at the same time to change his own attitude to one of acceptance of the modern world, which, though imperfect, is the only one he knows. In this image, there is no more conflict, for man is well on the way to being thoroughly refashioned and reoriented, and thus perfectly adjusted to the new world. The two images are one in issuing from the death of man as he has hitherto been known, 
man living on earth as a pilgrim, looking to heaven as his true home, and in pointing to the birth of a new man solely of the earth, knowing neither hope nor despair, save over the things of this world. Between them, the positive and negative images of the new man sum up the state of contemporary man, the man in whom worldliness has triumphed over faith. At the same time, they are a sign of transition, a presage of, of a major change in the spirit of the age. In the negative image, the apostasy from Christian truth, which primarily characterizes the modern age, seems to have reached its limit. God being dead, the man created in his image has lost his nature and fallen into subhumanity. In the positive image, on the other hand, a new movement seems to have begun. Man has discovered his new nature, that of a creature of the earth. The age of denial and nihilism, having gone as far as it could, is over. The new man no longer has enough interest in Christian truth to deny it. His whole attention is directed to this world. The new age, which many call a post-Christian age, is at the same time the age beyond nihilism, a phrase that expresses at once a fact and a hope. The fact this phrase expresses is that nihilism, being negative in essence, even if positive in aspiration, owing its whole energy to its passion to destroy Christian truth, comes to the end of its program in the production of a mechanized new earth and a dehumanized new man. Christian influence over man and over society have been effectively obliterated. Having been effectively obliterated, nihilism must retire and give way to another, more constructive movement capable of acting from autonomous and positive motives. This movement, which we shall describe in the next chapter under the name of anarchism, takes up the revolution at the point where nihilism leaves off and attempts to bring the movement which nihilism began to its logical conclusion. The hope contained in the phrase beyond nihilism is the naive one, that it has a spiritual as well as an historical reference, that the new age is to see the overcoming of nihilism and not merely its obsolescence. The god of nihilism, nothingness, is an emptiness, a vacuum waiting to be filled. Though who, those who have lived in this vacuum and acknowledged nothingness as their god cannot but seek a new god and hope that he will lead them out of the age and the power of nihilism. It is such people who, anxious to draw some positive significance from their situation and unwilling to believe that the nihilism through which our age has passed can be entirely unfruitful, have constructed an apology in which nihilism, however evil or unfortunate it may be in itself, is seen as the necessary means to an end beyond itself, as destruction preceding reconstruction, as darkness preceding the dawn. If the present darkness, uncertainty, and su suffering are unpleasant, so this apology continues, they are at the same time beneficial and purifying. Stripped bare of illusions, in the midst of a dark night of doubt and despair, one can only suffer these trials in patience and remain open and receptive to what the omnipotential, from what the omnipotential future may bring. Nihilism, it is presumed, is the apocalyptic sign of the advent of a new and better age. This apology is near universal and is capable of being adapted to innumerable contemporary viewpoints. Goebbels' view of the ultimately positive meaning of National Socialism, which we cited in the preceding section, is perhaps the most extreme of such adaptations. Other more spiritual versions of it have been common since the great crisis in... <coughs> <coughs> oh, sorry guys. I was hoping to avoid that. Mm. Hang on one sec.
Okay. I realized right after I muted that and uh, went to audio output. Son of a bitch. I didn't actually mute because I'm on the wrong mic. I've been on the wrong mic. Oh, no, I haven't. Never mind. All right. Okay. All right. I was making sure I was on. I thought I was um, using my AirPods this whole time. But good. Uh, two bit. Yeah. Uh, cue the IDW. This is exactly what he's describing here. This is like the spirit of the IDW is no nihilism is actually was actually a good thing. And, um, you know, let us learn all the all the positive lessons we need to learn from this nihilism and then embrace all of its precepts moving forward, having learned all of its lessons. Yeah, that's 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 exactly it. Bazed says, dang, I just started catching up with these streams yesterday. Still on part three. Uh, <laughs> the, the cough has been a, uh, uh, something I've had going for a few weeks now. I got some kind of a, some kind of a, something that a bug that stuck with me for a while. And it's just been right down here in my chest. And every once in a while, just a little bit of it just catches me. And I, I've just about coughed my head off a few times. Uh, okay. This apology is nearly universal and is capable of being adapted to an innumerable to innumerable contemporary viewpoints. Goebbels' view of the ultimately positive meaning of national socialism, which we cited in the preceding section, is perhaps the most extreme of such adaptations. Other more spiritual versions of it have been common since the great crisis in thought provoked by the French Revolution. Poets, would-be prophets, and occultists, as well as the more prosaic men whom these visionaries have influenced, while, while agonizing over the disorders of their times, have found comfort in the thought that they have been a blessing in disguise. W.B. Yeats may again be cited as typical in this attitude. Quote, Dear predatory birds, pre prepare for war. Love war because of its horror. That belief may be changed. Civilization renewed. Belief comes from shock. Belief is renewed continually in the ordeal of death. Close quote. More specifically, much the same attitude underlies contemporary hopes with regard to the Soviet Union. Being realistic, most men accept the social, political, and economic transformations wrought by Marxism while deprecating its violent means and its extremist ideology. At the same time, being optimistic and open to a better turn of affairs, men have welcomed the thaw that set in with the death of Stalin, hoping to see in it the first signs of a far-reaching transformation of the Marxist ideal. From coexistence, perhaps, one may proceed to cooperation and finally to harmony. Such ideas are the result of a basic misconception of the nature of the modern revolution. Nihilism is but one side of this revolution. Violence and negation are, to be sure, a preliminary work. But this work is only part of a much larger plan whose end promises to be, not something better, but something incomparably worse than the age of nihilism. If in our own times there are signs that the era of violence and negation is passing, this is by no means because nihilism is being overcome or outgrown, but because its work is all but completed and its usefulness is at an end. The revolution, perhaps, begins to move out of its malevolent phase and into a more benevolent one. Not because it has changed its will or its direction, but because it is nearing the attainment of the ultimate goal which it has never ceased to pursue. Fat with its success, it can prepare to relax in the enjoyment of this goal. The last hope of modern man is, in fact, but another of his illusions. The hope for a new age beyond nihilism is itself an expression of the last item in the program of the, of the revolution. It is by no means Marxism alone that promotes this program. There is no major power today whose government is not revolutionary. 
No one in a position of authority or influence whose criticism of Marxism goes beyond the proposal of better means to an end that is equally revolutionary. To disown the ideology of the revolution in the contemporary intellectual climate would be quite clearly to condemn oneself to political powerlessness. This is very similar to an observation that, that Moldbuck has made about um, liberalism, fascism, and communism being um, kind of three feathers from the same bird and liberalism being the one that won out over the other two. But it really just kind of, they were all three ways of getting to the same end point. And now liberalism has, in Moldbug's parlance, liberalism is the, the, the reigning ideology, the one that took over. And um, it has used the other two as foils to get to that point. But now that it's at that point, if you renounce liberalism, I mean, you're even the most ardent vocal opponents of quote unquote liberalism are still like nobody is, is seriously in the public eye with any sort of platform or political power renouncing the idea of human rights or of the individual or anything like that. Like, like father Seraphim says here to disown the ideology of the revolution in the contemporary intellectual climate would be quite clearly to condemn oneself to political powerlessness. And this was 60 years ago. It's even more so the case today. There is no clearer proof of this. There is no clearer proof than this of the anti-Christian spirit of our age. The profoundest anti-Christianity being, of course, the pseudo-Christianity, which is the goal of the revolution. Nihilism itself, and coming to the end of its own program, points to this goal that lies beyond it. That is the real meaning of the nihilist apology of Yeats and others. But again, it is perhaps in Nietzsche, that uncanny prophet who knew everything about nihilism except its ultimate meaning, a little irony in there, the ultimate meaning of nihilism, uh, who knew everything about nihilism except its ultimate meaning, that this idea receives its most striking expression. Quoting Nietzsche, under certain circumstances, the appearance of the extremist forms of pessimism and actual nihilism might be the sign of a process of incisive and most essential growth and of mankind's transit into completely new conditions of existence. This is what I have understood. Close quote. Beyond nihilism, there is to be a transvaluation of all values. Quoting Nietzsche again. With this formula, a counter-movement finds expression in regard to both a principle and a mission, a movement which in some remote future will supersede this perfect nihilism, but which nevertheless regards it as a necessary step, both logically and psychologically, towards its own advent, and which positively cannot come except on top of and out of it. Close quote. Strangely enough, the very same idea is expressed in the totally different context of Lenin's thought, where, after the exaltation of the nihilist idea of the universal factory, he continues, but this factory discipline, which the proletariat will extend to the whole of society after the defeat of the capitalists and the overthrow of the exploiters, is by no means our ideal or our final aim. It is but a foothold necessary for the radical cleansing of society of all the hideousness and foulness of capitalist exploitation in order to advance further, close quote. It is this further point, which Nietzsche and Lenin are at one in describing as completely new conditions of existence, that is the ultimate goal of the revolution. This goal, since it is in a certain sense beyond nihilism, and also because it is a large topic in itself, requires a separate chapter. To conclude this chapter and our discussion of nihilism proper, it will be sufficient merely to suggest its nature and thus establish the general framework of our, of our exposition in the next chapter. 
This goal may be viewed as a threefold corollary of nihilist thought. And re reminder, when it says next chapter, that's outside this book. This, this pamphlet here really was one chapter of the whole book that Father Seraphim was writing. The next book was obviously dedicated to anarchism. And I, I would love to know if that book is actually out there because I'd love to read that. I think it said this was the only one that was actually typed out and the rest of it were all handwritten notes of his. So maybe he never fully completed it. I don't really know the story behind this. So if somebody does, please reach out. I'd love to know. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so um, when he's saying, talking about the next chapter or previous chapters, he's not actually referring to this book itself. He's referring to the, the other stuff. First, the corollary. So this is the threefold corollary of nihilist thought. First, the corollary of the nihilist annihilation of the old order is the conception of a new age, new in an absolute and not a relative sense. The age about to begin is not to be merely the latest or even the greatest of a series of ages, but the inauguration of a whole new time. It is set up against all that has hitherto been. It may be, said Nietzsche in a letter of 1884, that I am the first to light upon an idea which will divide the history of mankind in two. As the consequence of this idea, all who are born after us belong to a higher history than any history hitherto. Nietzsche is, of course, blinded by his pride. I was just going to say, never uh, Nietzsche was never um, in, in short supply of sniffing his own farts. Nietzsche is, of course, blinded by his pride. He made no original discovery, but only found words for what had been in the air already for some time. Precisely the same idea, in fact, was expressed 12 years early by, earlier by Dostoevsky in the person of Kirillov, the most extreme of the possessed, quoting, Everything will be new. Then they will divide history into two parts, from the gorilla to the annihilation of God, and from the annihilation of God to the transformation of the earth and of man physically. Close quote. Here there is already suggested the second corollary of nihilist thought. The nihilist rebellion and anti-theism responsible for the death of God give rise to the idea that it is to inaugurate the new age, the transformation of man himself into a god. Dead are all the gods, says Nietzsche's Zarathustra. Now do we desire the superman to live. The murder of God is a deed too great to leave men unchanged. Quoting, shall we not ourselves have to become gods merely to seem worthy of it? In Kirillov, the superman is the man-god, for in his logic, if there is no god, then I am god. It is this idea of the superman that underlies and inspires the conception of the transformation of man, alike in the realism of Marx and in the vitalism of numerous occultists and artists. The various conceptions of the new man are, as it were, a series of preliminary sketches of the superman. For just as nothingness, the god of nihilism, is but an emptiness and expectancy looking to fulfillment in the revelation of some new god. So too, the new man, whom nihilism has deshaped, reduced, and left without character, without faith, without orientation, this new man, whether viewed as positive or negative, has become mobile and flexible, open and receptive. He is passive material, awaiting some new discovery or revelation or command that is to remold him finally into his definitive shape. Oh, excuse me. The, uh, in a sense, this new man who's mobile, flexible, open, and receptive is now ready to be possessed. Finally, the corollary of the nihilist annihilation of authority and order is the conception 
I've never encountered this word before. That doesn't happen to me very often. Adumbrated. Let me look this one up. To adumbrate. Report or represent an outline. To indicate faintly, to foreshadow or symbolize, or to overshadow. Huh. Now I have a new word to use. <clears throat> Finally, the corollary of the nihilist annihilation of authority and order is the conception adumbrated in all the myths of a new order, of an entirely new species of order, an order which is its most ardent defenders do not hesitate to call anarchy. The nihilist state in the Marxist myth is to wither away, leaving a world order that is to be unique in human history and which it would be no exaggeration to call the millennium. A new age ruled by anarchy and populated by supermen this is the revolutionary dream that has stirred men into performing the incredible drama of modern history. It is an apocalyptic dream, and they are quite correct to see in it, and they are quite correct who see in it a strange inversion of the Christian hope in the kingdom of, of heaven. But that is no excuse for the sympathy so often accorded at least the more sincere and noble revolutionaries and nihilists. This is one of the pitfalls we found it necessary to warn against at the very beginning of this chapter. In a world thinly balanced on the edge of chaos, where all truth and nobility seem to have vanished, the temptation is great among the well-meaning but naive to seek out certain of the undoubtedly striking figures who have populated the modern intellectual landscape, and, in ignorance of genuine standards of truth and spirituality, to magnify them into spiritual giants who have spoken a word which, though unorthodox, is at least challenging. But the realities of this world and of the next are too rigorous to permit such vagueness and liberalism. Good intentions too easily go astray. Genius and nobility are too often perverted. And the corruption of the best produces not the second best, but the worst. I like that. The corruption of the best produces not the second best, but the worst. One must grant genius and fervor and even a certain nobility to a Marx, a Proudhon, a Nietzsche. But theirs is the nobility of Lucifer. The first among the angels who, wishing to be even more than he was, fell from that exalted position into the abyss. Their vision, in which some would see a profounder kind of Christianity, is the vision of the reign of Antichrist, the satanic imitation and inversion of the kingdom of God. All nihilists, but preeminently those of the greatest genius and the broadest vision, are the prophets of Satan. Refusing to use their talents in the humble service of God, they have waged war against God with his own gifts. He's not really really uh, mincing words here. <laughs> he's a uh, um, pretty uh, um, this is a pretty comprehensive demolition. Let me catch up on some of these comments. You guys are, are taking off here. So, um, Marshall Forward, uh, no one will ever disavow the Enlightenment. Yeah, that's a, that'll be the day. Year zero. Yeah, that's a, a shout out Tommy Sammons. Speaking of truck drivers. Um, year zero is a very apt name for his podcast, given the, the, the content that he talks about to bit, uh, one cannot receive the Christian message with self-hatred or resentment in their heart. Christ demands humility and the progressive regime does everything it can to keep people from it. Bingo. Marshall. Do you think that if father Seraphim Rose is around today in this current age, he'd be canceled 100%. He would be, uh, um, huh. um, this is no no disrespect to Abbott Trifon. I think he's a brilliant, wonderful man. And there's we can have two good things at the same time. Love having Abbott Trifon around. He's phenomenal. The cancellation that he's experienced, I think, would probably be a fraction of what Father Seraphim would get. 
Uh, thanks for the the super chat, Rigovich. Appreciate you. Um, oh, adumbrated. Adumbrated is that how you pronounce it? I didn't actually look at the pronunciation. Let me look at it again here. Adumbrate. Uh, it's, okay, I guess it has both. So it has adumbrate and adumbrate. 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 Hmm. I'll figure out how it feels when I use it. Uh, da, 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 da. John MC be canceled by some theologian and committee of experts on ancient faith radio. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> uh, I love Lord of Spirits, but yeah, the, I, I follow what you're, what you're saying there, John MC. All right. Yeah, that's a good point, Rigovich. He's already kind of canceled amongst some Orthodox. That's a good point. It can hardly be denied, and a sober look at the transformations the world and man have undergone in the last two centuries can only confirm the fact that the war of the enemies of God has been successful. Its ultimate victory, in fact, seems eminent. But what can victory mean in such a war? What kind of peace can a humanity know that has been learning so long the lessons of violence? In the Christian life, we know there is a harmony of means and ends. Through prayer and a devout life, and through the sacraments of the church, the Christian is changed by the grace of God to become more like his Lord and thus more worthy to participate in the kingdom he has prepared for those who truly follow him. Those are his who are known by the fruits they bear. Patience, humility, meekness, obedience, peace, joy, love, kindness, forgiveness. Fruits which at one and the same time prepare for and already share in the fullness of that kingdom. End and means are one. What is begun in this life is perfected in the life to come. In the same way, there is a harmony in the works of Satan. The virtues of his servants are consistent with the ends they serve. Hatred, pride, rebelliousness, discord, violence, unscrupulous use of power. These will not magically disappear when the revolutionary kingdom is finally realized on earth. They will rather be intensified and perfected. If the revolutionary goal beyond nihilism is described in precisely contrary terms, and if nihilists actually see it as a reign of love, peace, and brotherhood, that is because Satan is the ape of God, and even in denial must acknowledge the source of that denial. And, more to the present point, because men have been so changed by the practice of the nihilist virtues, and by acceptance of the nihilist transformation of the world, that they actually begin to live in the revolutionary kingdom and to see everything as Satan sees it, as the contrary of what is in the eyes of God. Wanted to point out here, interestingly, he says the unscrupulous use of power. He doesn't just say use of power. He says the unscrupulous use of power, implying that there is a scrupulous use of power. Thank you for the super chat, Marshall Forward. Appreciate it. <clears throat> um, this parallel here that he draws is really fascinating to me, that by participating in the in the fruits of the Spirit of God, you begin, the, the end of the means are the same thing. You begin experiencing heaven here on earth by participating in the fruits of the Spirit. In the same way, you begin to experience hell here on earth by participating in the fruits of Satan. And Satan's entire worldview that he's seeking to implant in us is a direct inversion and repudiation of the proper divine perspective. It's 
it's a um he can't even like he said here even in denial he must acknowledge the source of that denial this is uh makes me think of the the um um i can't remember if it's a verse or um i think it's yeah it's a verse i, I believe it's a verse in the bible um not just in the writings of the fathers but i think there's a verse in the bible talks about um that the uh, essentially the demons do the bidding of god that nothing that they actually do is something that they've done outside the allowance of god and it's in a sense it's like the angels are his right hand and the demons are his left hand not that he's actually wielding the demons deliberately and I'm like a, in a in a sadistic or malevolent way but that when we experience the effects of the demons it's because he permits us to whether to um whether because we ask for it not knowing what we're asking for or because like with job we're being tested and we know that no matter what tests he gives us he's going to give us the means to pass the test but it's up to us whether we choose to take that on whether we choose to accept those means to pass it or if we try to pass the test on our own in which case we'll fail what lies um yeah okay what lies beyond nihilism and has been the profoundest dream of its greatest prophets is by no means the overcoming of nihilism but its culmination the new age being largely the work of nihilism will be in substance nothing different from the nihilist era we know to believe otherwise to look for salvation to some new development whether brought about i mean let me start this over again to believe otherwise to look for salvation to some new development whether brought about by the inevitable forces of progress or evolution or some romantic dialectic or supplied gratuitously from the treasury of the mysterious future before which modern men stand in superstitious awe to believe this is to be the victim of a monstrous delusion nihilism is most profoundly a spiritual disorder and it can be overcome only by spiritual means and there has been no attempt whatever in the contemporary world to apply such means the nihilist disease is apparently to be left to develop to its very end. The goal of the revolution, originally the hallucination of a few fevered minds, has now become the goal of humanity itself. Men have become weary. The kingdom of God is too distant. The orthodox Christian way is too narrow and arduous. The revolution has captured the spirit of the age. And to go against this powerful current is more than modern men can do. For it requires precisely the two things most thoroughly annihilated by nihilism, truth and faith. To end our discussion of nihilism on such a note as this is surely to lay ourselves open to the charge that we possess a nihilism of our own. Our analysis, it may be argued, is pessimistic in the extreme. Categorically rejecting almost everything held valuable and true by modern, modern man, we seem to be as thorough in denial as the most extreme of nihilists. And indeed, the Christian is, in a certain sense, in an ultimate sense, a nihilist. For to him, in the end, the world is nothing, and God is all. This is, of course, the precise opposite of the nihilism we've examined here, where God is nothing and the world is all. That is a nihilism that proceeds from the abyss, and the Christian's is a nihilism that proceeds from abundance. The true nihilist places his faith in things that pass away and end in nothing. All optimism on this foundation is clearly futile. The Christian, renouncing such vanity, places his faith in the one thing that will not pass away, the kingdom of God. John's saying that it's frozen here. Um, everything's still good on my end. I haven't had any flashes. Let me know, anybody else, if you can hear. 
um, or if you still see the video going, the stream is telling me that um, it's still good. It says the connection is excellent. Um, stream health is excellent. Um, so everything's all good on my end. So hopefully, uh, hopefully John's able to, to see what's going on. Okay. Restored now. Good. All right. Uh, da, 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 da. I'm going to read this, this paragraph again, at least for John's sake. And indeed the Christian is in a certain sense in an ultimate sense, a nihilist for to him in the end, the world is nothing and God is all. This is, of course, the precise opposite of the nihilism we have examined here, where God is nothing and the world is all. That is a nihilism that proceeds from the abyss, and the Christian's is a nihilism that proceeds from abundance. The true nihilist places his faith in things that pass away and end in nothing. All optimism on this foundation is clearly futile. The Christian, renouncing such vanity, places his faith in the one thing that will not pass away, the kingdom of God. To him who lives in Christ, of course, many of the goods of this world may be given back, and he may enjoy them even while realizing their evanescence. But they are not needful. They are not truly nothing to him. He who does not live in Christ, on the other hand, already... Oh, I misread that. I read that the opposite of how it's supposed to be. Starting over again. To him who lives in Christ, of course, many of the goods of this world may be given back, and he may enjoy them even while realizing their evanescence. But they are not needful. They are truly nothing to him. He who does not live in Christ, on the other hand, already lives in the abyss, and not all the treasures of this world can ever fill his emptiness. But it is a mere literary device to call the nothingness and poverty of the Christian nihilism. They are rather fullness, abundance, joy beyond imagining. And it is only one full of such abundance who can squarely face the abyss to which nihilism has conducted men. The most extreme denier, the most disillusioned of men, can only exist if he exempt at least one illusion from his destructive analysis. This fact is indeed the psychological root of that new age in which the most thorough nihilist must place all his hope. He who cannot believe in Christ must and will believe in Antichrist. But if nihilism has its historical end in the reign of Antichrist, it has its ultimate and spiritual end beyond even that final satanic manifestation. And in this end, which is hell, Nihilism meets its final defeat. The nihilist is defeated not merely because his dream of paradise ends in eternal misery. For the thorough nihilist, unlike his opposite, the anarchist, is too disillusioned really to believe in that paradise and too full of rage and rebellion to do anything but destroy it in its turn if it ever came into existence. The nihilist is defeated, rather, because in hell, his deepest wish, the nihilization of God, of creation, and of himself, is proved futile. Dostoevsky well described, in the words of the dying Father Zosima, this ultimate refutation of nihilism. Quoting, There are some who remain proud and fierce even in hell, in spite of their certain knowledge and contemplation of the absolute truth. There are some fearful ones who have given themselves over to Satan and his proud spirit entirely. For such, hell is voluntary and ever-consuming. They are tortured by their own choice. For they have cursed themselves, cursing God and life. They cannot behold the living God without hatred, and they cry out that the God of life should be annihilated, that God should destroy himself and his own creation. And they will burn in the fire of their own wrath forever and yearn for death and annihilation, but they will not attain to death. Close quote. 
It is the great and invincible truth of Christianity that there is no annihilation. All nihilism is in vain. God may be fought, that is one of the meanings of the modern age, but he may not be conquered, and he may not be escaped. His kingdom shall endure eternally, and all who reject the call to his kingdom must burn in the flames of hell forever. It has, of course, been a primary intention of nihilism to abolish hell and the fear of hell from men's minds, and no one can doubt their success. Hell has become for most people today a folly and a superstition, if not a sadistic fantasy. Even those who still believe in the liberal heaven have no room in their universe for any kind of hell. Yet, strangely, modern men have an understanding of hell that they do not of heaven, that they do not, that they do not have of heaven. The word and the concept have a prominent place in contemporary art and thought. No sensitive observer is unaware that men, in the nihilist era more than ever before, have made of earth an image of hell. And those who are aware of dwelling in the abyss do not hesitate to call their state hell. The torture and miseries of this life are indeed a foretaste of hell, even as the joys of a Christian life, joys which the nihilist cannot even imagine, so remote are they from his experience, are a foretaste of heaven. But if the nihilist has a dim awareness, even here, of the meaning of hell, he has no idea of its full extent, which cannot be experienced in this life. Even the most extreme nihilist, while serving the demons and even invoking them, has not had the spiritual sight necessary to see them as they are. The satanic spirit, the spirit of hell, is always disguised in this world. Its snares are set along a broad path that may seem pleasant, or at least exciting, to many. And Satan offers, to those who follow his path, the consoling thought and hope of ultimate extinction. If, despite the consolations of Satan, no follower of his is very happy in this life, and if in the last days, of which the calamities of our century are a small preview, there shall be great tribulation such as not was since the beginning of the world to this time, still it is only in the next life that the servants of Satan will realize the full bitterness of hopeless misery. The Christian believes in hell and fears its fire. Not earthly fire, as clever unbelief would have it, but fire infinitely more painful, because, like the bodies with which men shall rise on the last day, it shall be spiritual and unending. The world reproaches the Christian for believing in such an unpleasant reality. But it is neither perversity or sadism that leads him to do so, but rather faith and experience. Only he, perhaps, can fully believe in hell who fully believes in heaven and life in God. For only he who has some idea of that life can have any notion of what its absence will mean. For most men today, life is a small thing, a fleeting thing of small affirmation and small denial, veiled in comforting illusions and the hopeful prospect of ultimate nothingness. Such men will know nothing of hell until they live in it. But God loves even such men too much to allow them simply to forget him and pass away into nothingness, out of his presence, which alone is life to men. He offers, even to those in hell, his love, which is torment to those who have not prepared themselves in this life to receive it. Many, we know, are tested and purified in those flames and made fit by them to dwell in the kingdom of heaven. But others, with the demons for whom hell was made, must dwell there eternally. There is no need, even today when men seem to have become too weak to face the truth, to soften the realities of the next life. To those, be they nihilists or more moderate humanists, who presume to fathom the will of the living God and to judge him for his cruelty, one may answer with an unequivocal assertion of something in which most of them profess to believe, the dignity of man. God has called us, not to the modern heaven of repose and sleep, 
but to the full and deifying glory of the sons of God. And if we, whom our God thinks worthy to receive it, reject this call, then better for us the flames of hell, the torment of that last and awful proof of man's high calling and of God's unquenchable love for men, than the nothingness to which men of small faith and the nihilism of our age aspire. Nothing less than hell is worthy of man if he be not worthy of heaven. And that is Nihilism, the Root of the Revolution of the Modern Age by Father Seraphim Rose. The thunder is rolling out there. It is getting pretty rumbly. All attempts to escape the cross will bring you to the cross. Two-bit. Very nice. I don't know if you were here, Two-bit, at the very beginning of the show, but... Uh, um, I got confirmation from Gornoski that he's going to come on, on King Pilled, and we're going to have a conversation about building the city of God. John MC says, a perennialist or traditionalist said the 19th century closed off heaven, the 20th century opened up hell. That's a really interesting observation because uh, it's definitely true. And uh, I think... Uh, Father Seraphim would have agreed with it in, you know, obviously understanding the the observation that's being made. Um, but it's also interesting because he studied under Rene Guénon, and a lot of his critiques of vitalism are directed toward something like, um, on one hand, the the kind of perennialism, the the Nietzschean, Ubermenschian kind of. Um, that that's the the vitalism is he's he's talking about in part that worldview and then also the the parallel quote unquote left hand side of of um, the postmodern age because um, they're kind of two two sides of the same coin so to speak. <coughs> All right, well, uh, let me close that out there. Appreciate you guys uh, riding along here with me on this. Like I said before, uh, we're going to be starting um, Orthodoxy and the Religion of the Future next. Let me see if I can... Uh, uh, Orthodoxy and the Religion of the Future. <clears throat> I had a PDF of this at one point, and I think I still do. Um, that's not it. That's an excerpt. Let me see. Whoops. Nope. Don't open there. Get the hints. Um, I'm pretty sure that I still have it. Bear with me just a sec here, guys. Let me uh, open this up. Uh, okay, I think that might work for it. I'd like to have a digital copy to be able to uh, to read it in the same format. <clears throat> but if I don't, it's not the end of the world. Um, I'm fine uh, doing a physical copy of it. I wanted to see if I could pull it up here right now. 
and uh, I would just start it just to give you guys a um, a little taste. Uh, that's not it here. Oh, that's right. That was. Let me check my downloads real quick and see if that was what downloaded. Yeah, that's just an excerpt. That's not the whole thing. Um, all right, I'll I'll see if I can find it here. Um, figure out wherever I where I had downloaded it before, and um, and then uh, then we'll read it here in the future. Uh, two bit. I think I have one I can send you if necessary. Okay, that sounds good. Um, I appreciate that. Marshall says, that's the book that converted me to orthodoxy, but couldn't stop talking about it for good reason. Awesome. I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading it. I haven't read it yet. Um, I've just heard a lot about it and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Um, and I'm really, I'm looking forward to getting through it so that I could get, I can get to Genesis creation and early man. Cause I'm really excited to read that one. Um, cause, uh, ancient history and, um, the and he, I guess anthropology from the Orthodox Christian perspective is is probably the most fascinating thing to me right now. Um, so um, I'm very interested to go through that, uh, get Father Seraphim's take on that. John said, "Funny, Guanan said Christianity was finished and devoid of grace, but he was referring primarily and solely to Catholicism. He said virtually nothing about Orthodoxy. That is very interesting. Um, there's a lot of." Uh, um, it's very, very common thing. I think you hear a lot of thinkers who have very, um, in their mind, very well-developed thoughts about Christianity, but all they've really encountered is, is sometimes it's even just Protestant Christianity. They haven't even encountered or really wrestled with, with even, um, uh, Catholicism or especially Orthodoxy. And I mean, that was where, that was where I was. I was very well-read in, in Protestant Christianity and thought I kind of, kind of knew all there was to know and just had try to figure out how it connected with me. Um, and then reading or, or listening to Lord of Spirits was my first real introduction to, to the actual uh, Orthodox view. And then it just blew my mind that this had existed out there for millennia and never even heard of it, never even encountered it. Um, it was wild. Uh, Rigovich says, my teen son likes Rene Guinan. It's because of him, my son, that I'm a wannabe Rokor catechumen. Awesome. Um, you should, you should definitely become a real core catechumen and not just a wannabe. Um, that's interesting. So your son is, are you saying your son is Orthodox and also likes Gwinnon? Um, or are you saying something about your son's relationship to Gwinnon led you to Orthodoxy? I'm curious to understand that. Um, Tubit says Evola would have been complete if he'd encountered Orthodoxy. That would have been. That would have been something seeing Evola um, take on the Orthodox Phronema would have been a, a pretty remarkable thing. Uh, spe speaking of Gornowski, he had a, a interesting conversation recently. He kind of, he clickbaited me a little bit with the title and said um, his title was something about like Nikola Tesla should be a saint. And I thought that the conversation was going to be about uh, Tesla and it was only sort of adjacently kind of referred to him at one point. Um, but uh it was very interesting for me to learn that Tesla was um, his, I believe his father or his grandfather or both of them were Orthodox priests. And um, yeah, Tesla is one of the most fascinating people to me. That's that's another thing like, like 
ancient history, symbolism, mythology, uh, and kind of like the the avenues of science that we aren't um, aren't permitted to explore or talk about today. All of those things are that's like really fertile ground to me. Stuff that I I want to get into. I want to talk to people. Um, the Randall Carlson, Atlantis, Graham Hancock, um, all of that whole uh, that whole milieu of people are fascinating to me. There's a, uh, uh, there's a guy you guys may have encountered if you're watching Orthodox stuff on YouTube named Seraphim Hamilton. And he had a, um, uh, he's doing a series right now with a guy named Ken Griffith talking about um, like reimagining ancient chronology. And he's Ken Griffith is, is the most like impressive display of autism I've ever seen. And I say this as a, as uh, like a, a distinct compliment. Ken Griffith is the way he can just talk about all these different ancient empires and the different characters in them and the dates associated with them and stuff is just wild. But he basically started this project with the assumption that the Bible records um, true history and the standard dating models don't correspond with the Bible. Well, and he wanted, he was like, well, let's figure out how we can figure out where they went wrong and make it right. And so he found a, um, they found a really fascinating set of synchronicities that the long and short of it essentially is that the, 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 the standard of our, our, our modern dating models relies heavily on an Egyptian priest named Manitho. And he had a, um, if you read his, his historical accounts of the different, um, Egyptian empires as a, a sequential succession of empires, then you get the very long tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years dating system that we have today. But what they began to realize is that these different empires did not exist or these dynasties didn't exist sequentially in succession. Many of them existed contemporaneously to one another. So it would be kind of like if you took each of the states of the U.S. and called it a dynasty, called it an Egyptian dynasty. And so like right now, there would be 50, 50 dynasties. And then like each of the, the um, governors of each state would be like a, um, the king of that dynasty. Um, so if you took the history of each American state and you put them all end to end, then you would say, oh, well, America has been around for, you know, I don't know, however many thousands of years. But if you understand that these were all the, that many of these were, were, were coterminous with each other or existed at the same time as each other, then it drastically shortens up that time frame. And what they've found is that operating under that, uh, that like that operating principle essentially that um he's describing these different dynasties but they're they're all many of them are contemporary with each other at different times all of a sudden all these different dates have started clicking into place and so they've they've found a a really uh they're making a really compelling case for an actual young earth um model that and they even touch on the younger dryas impact hypothesis at one point um, which is the Randall Carlson, Graham Hancock, uh, their big claim to fame talking about the the comet hitting the earth. And he said his take on it was that that, that event is actually recorded in the Bible as the day the sun stood still with Joshua. And that the effects of that kind of a, of a, um, 
catastrophe would have had the effects of the making the sun stand still and everything. Anyway, so it was a, that kind of thing is fascinating to me as well. Like wanting to understand the the history that we haven't been told, um, the history that's been hidden from us or, you know, whatever. And then uh, Cooper uh, just got me started on a series that Jonathan Pajot has been doing with Richard Rowland. Uh, the guy from the Amon Sewell podcast, the, the um, uh, Tolkien podcast that he does with uh, um, Father Damick. Um, so Richard Rowland and Jonathan Pajot have been doing a series called uh, Universal History, um, basically talking about all the different um, ancient myths and how they're all essentially telling the Christian story from different perspectives. Um, that's kind of the gist of it. I, I, I haven't started listening to it really yet, but um, so that's another ancient mythology and the the way these different stories can all be traced back to um, the uh, to some major patriarch or some some major event in the Bible is all it's just very very fascinating to me so um, anyways if you guys have interesting people who who have interesting thoughts on that uh, then by all means send them to me uh, you could DM it to me on Twitter or um, you could join the discord and you can you can share it in there. Um, we've got a couple of different, um, channels. We have one channel in there that's dedicated entirely to talking about conspiracy stuff and global stuff and history, weird history and that kind of thing. Um, so, uh, yeah, you can join the discord, um, if you'd like, uh, uh and you can support the show as well. If you do, it's a uh, subscribe star.com slash King Um, there's three different tiers you can sign up. Um, that supports the show, helps me do more of these episodes. And, um, and then you also get to be a part of the, of the discord. Uh, so you can come in there and chat with us. We'll do some voice chats. Um, I think, I think I'll be able to do a voice chat here tonight. I've got a seven 30 now, so I got to get wrapped up. Um, so I can help put Eastwood to bed, but then, uh, um, I'll have to take the dog out here for a little bit. So I think I'll be able to, to do a, a voice chat. Um, uh, two bit. My, uh, email is, uh, just uh, real king at gmail.com. I don't care about putting that out there. That's just my show email. So real king at gmail.com. Just like my Twitter handle. Um, I am on Instagram. I think, let me double check what my handle is. I think it's real king as well. Yeah. At real king on Instagram. Uh, okay, let me catch up. You guys have been talking here for a second and then I got to get out of here. So, da, 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 da. um, Rigovich is wannabe. Uh, we're both long term inquirers, but we cannot access a suitable church. There's only a Coptic and unwelcoming Greek. Oh, that sucks. Sorry to hear that, man. Um, my son pronounced he was a Christian at four years old. Wow, that's awesome. John MC says, Reign of quantity and signs of the times is good, but it must be immediately followed with what. Um, Father Seraphim is written as a corrective antidote. Uh, da, 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 the one with Uber Boyo. What was I talking about? Oh, um, no. So Garnowski's conversation with Uber Boyo is fantastic. Um, <coughs> two of his most recent ones. One was, um, I think the title was like, uh, why is why Nikola Tesla should be a saint or something like that. And uh, he has a conversation with a couple other guys I've, I've never heard of before, but it was very, very interesting um, talking about um, uh, technology and um, our relationship to it and the effects of it. Um, it, it. It's after I listened to that conversation is when I reached out to him. Um, so our conversation is going to be based off of 
that episode, the Nikola Tesla one, and then the other one he did recently was Jesus in the Cornerstone event. That was the the primary one that we're going to be riffing off of. Um, Marshall said, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Peter Steele from Type O Negative, famous metal band. Anyway, I had no idea his father was a Russian Orthodox. Huh. Interesting. Peter also had a fasc fascination of Rasputin. That reminds me that I would like to re-encounter the life of Rasputin now that I have kind of broken out of the Disney view of the world. Um, it's made me think that that perhaps Rasputin was, um, I don't know any of this. It's just me kind of, like once you see this happen enough times where you're like, huh, I was always led to believe this. And then one day I learned that that thing I was led to believe was completely false and wrong in a completely opposite direction. This wasn't a bad guy. This is a good guy. You know, that's happened to me enough times that I kind of just start uh, reflexively doubting um, many of the different people who I've been trained to believe as a, have a believe as villains. Um, so Rasputin is one that I'd be very interested to hear a compelling case that um, that he wasn't a villain at all, that he was actually a great man. I think it's probably the truth is probably somewhere in the middle as it often is, but um, that's something that I'd be interested in learning more about. So if you have any, any interesting videos on like an alternative perspective on Rasputin, particularly from an Orthodox perspective, then please do send those to me. I, I will definitely watch or listen to those things. Uh, da, 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 da. The Genesis 6 conspiracy is an interesting read. What exactly do you mean by the Genesis 6 conspiracy, Rigovich? Um, uh, John MC, reporters asked Einstein how it felt to be the smartest man in the world. Einstein replied, I don't know, you'll have to ask Nikola Tesla. Yeah, I've heard that before. I, I wonder if it's true or if it's a kind of some mythology, but um, I definitely... Um, I, I thought it was fascinating when I learned Trump's connection to Tesla, because I think that there was, there's a whole lot more going on there than, uh, than meets the eye. <clears throat> uh, Peter is one of the few outspoken Christian right-wingers in metal while everyone else in metal was proclaiming the typical atheist satanic crap. What was the, uh, it was the name of the band was typo negative. Interesting. I haven't heard of it. I'll check it out. I like some metal. Don't take Hancock too seriously. I, yeah, I love, I love the man. I obviously um, have, uh, yeah, he's, he's a very sincere, sweet man. And um, I think he's a, just a wonderful person. Clearly we see the world very differently now. Um, he's got some premises that I don't share anymore, um, but I still adore the man. Same with, with space Santa, uh, Rand, uh, Randall Carlson. John Lloyd says, if orthodoxy religion of the future is 12 episodes in Genesis and creation, our man will be like 40. Yeah, yeah, Genesis creation. And I don't expect to finish reading these two books probably until like the end of this year. It'll take me a while. Um, uh, there's a very thick layer of myth plastered over Rasputin by the Bolsheviks, of course. Right, of course. Uh, Klontarf, you said, what is that connection? What was that referring to? I don't remember what I was saying. I read uh, uh, Graham Hancock's books, um, several of them, uh, probably four or five years ago. And it was before I encountered orthodoxy. Um, and I think that as a, as a scholar, as a, a, a journalist, a historian, um, I think that his, his work is, is 
extremely rigorous. I think he's done a fantastic job. I don't agree with, I mean, I don't share the same worldview as he does. And he's kind of a, when it comes to politics, he's kind of a, a bit of a, a boring lib. Um, but I think that uh, I was very into psychedelics for a while and it was right around the same time. So I can, I can appreciate where he's coming from. And he's someone that I would love to see encounter orthodoxy um, because I think he has a really good heart. Um, oh, Trump's connection to Tesla. Uh, Tesla's, um, so Trump's uncle, John Trump, was um, an FBI agent or worked for the FBI. And he, when Tesla died and the US government immediately, the federal government immediately took over all of his, uh, his apartment and all of his writings and everything. John Trump, Donald's uncle was, um, very closely involved in going through all of Tesla's stuff. Um, so if there was, you know, uh, significant things in his writings, and if he had specific types of technology or something that we've never been exposed to, then John Trump almost for sure knew what it was. And so his connection to, to Donald is, is, is very interesting. Um, Genesis six conspiracy is 800 pages long with pages and pages of sources. Okay. So it's a book. Genesis six conspiracy. Book by Gary Wayne, how secret societies and descendants descendants of giants plan to enslave humankind. Interesting. Um, Yeah, I'll definitely read this. Obviously, with uh, I'll keep my salt shaker around as I read it, but this looks very interesting. I've got a bunch of uh, Amazon Prime uh, uh, credits stored up, so if there's a, an audio book, that would be fantastic. All right. Um, yeah, he kept some papers of Tesla's. They say time travel papers. Yeah, so like, obviously the... the the um, the memers have kind of gone wild with the whole idea and all the different conspiracy theorists really kind of go ham with it. But I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff that that uh, that Tesla was getting into and stuff that Randall Carlson has touched on as well, dealing with like energy fields within the within the the planet and um, what are those called ley lines that kind of thing. It's all all very interesting. Um, to me, it's just. Um, I'm willing to read anything and just kind of with a grain of salt, see what's there. Um, uh, it has wonky theology. I mean, yeah, I assume you're meaning the Genesis six conspiracy book. I would expect it would have wonky theology. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'll be interested to, to see the connections. All right, guys, I got to get out of here. Thank you for, uh, for chatting. Thank you for the, the, um, donations, um, you guys have made here. Um, I see it said someone uh, just became a member. Uh, John MC, awesome. Appreciate you, man. Thank you for uh, thank you for becoming a member. You guys can become a channel member and then you get to use, you get a, a cool little uh, little star next to your name and you've got a, a special emoji you can use and then you can see um, posts that I make. I need to start making some posts there. Um, but uh, as we move forward throughout the rest of this year, um, I think there's going to be a um, kind of, tenuously, it seems like there, there's going to be some changes kind of going forward in my life. And so I think I'll be able to, um, 
really start dedicating a lot more time to this. And I've got a lot of plans and stuff for what I want to do with the show. So, um, uh, I'll definitely be, uh, contributing more to the, the, the members, um, uh, the members section here on YouTube and, and kind of fleshing that out a little bit. And then, uh, again, you can join the, the, the discord. Um, we got a good group of guys over there. Hopefully I'll do, be able to do a, um, uh, uh, uh voice chat tonight. And then uh, I'm also looking into making some merch, some King Pilled merch. It'd be kind of fun. Um, so if you guys happen to know any good merch makers, then I'd love to work with someone that is is uh, of like mind or, or friendly. Um, but I'll just I'll just pick whomever if I don't get a special connection. So um, I just got the email too, bit appreciate it. Uh, so I got the 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 PDF here now. So anyways, I'll see you guys around. Uh, hopefully I might do another show tomorrow um, or um, at least the next day. And we'll get started on orthodoxy and the religion of the future. Thanks, guys. We'll see you later.